Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. way that we organize the world and power in it is dependent upon a doomsday machine, basically. Uh, and eventually our luck is going to run out. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. The bomb. More than 70 years ago, a detonation in New Mexico changed the world. The U.S. had created a nuclear weapon and ushered in the era of the atom. The bomb was such an incredible and powerful weapon that it has created a culture and mythology all its own. From duck and cover to the irradiated wastes of Fallout's New Vegas, what society says about the bomb says a lot about society. Martin Pfeiffer is a Ph.D. student at the University of New Mexico, who studies the anthropology of nukes. His research, quote, focuses on how we create and circulate beliefs and values about nuclear weapons. This week on War College, we're going to explore those beliefs and how they've changed over the years. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so off the top, I want to ask, what do you think defines the current era of nuclear discussion? Uh, that's a big question. Um, I don't know that it can really be encapsulated necessarily in a sentence. Certainly, until recently, I would have said neglect, um, despite, you know, the Cold War ended and despite the continued existence of thousands of nuclear weapons ready to launch, you know, da 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 da, da uh, we really kind of stopped talking about them a lot after 9-11, although there was a very brief moment um, where we were beginning to discuss issues of nu- nuclear deterrence with regards to terrorism and the potential inapplicability of nuclear weapons and um, older concepts of nuclear deterrence to the current security moment. But we seem to have swung away from that, certainly um, back into what the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review referred to as right this era of conceptualizing of it in, as a um, great power competition. So, uh, you know, I guess the 80s and 70s and 60s were so much fun, we decided to do them again or something. It's everything old is new again. Yeah, it's really maddening, actually, um, you know, the, the discussing some of these things. It's like, OK, I thought we we covered this in the 60s or in the 70s or in the 80s. But here we are again. Um, certainly. So things like Vladimir Putin's uh, big address oh, where he. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, yes. That's the kind of thing you're talking about. <laughs> Right. I mean, I, I never would have imagined in my in my life that we were going to be back in a situation where a country was talking about deploying a nuclear propelled 
cruise missile. I mean, Project Pluto, which was the U.S.'s Cold War version of that, um, was a, a ramjet driven by a nuclear engine, the, the supersonic low-altitude missile that was supposed to carry multiple megaton-class nuclear weapons. It would have been a screaming um, hypersonic machine of irradiating death. A doomsday weapon, and um, you know, to, to hear Russia talking about, oh, we've supposedly tested something similar, or the uh, the cobalt salted autonomous nuclear powered torpedo. I mean, it's like a Bond movie. What does your work look like day to day? What kind of artifacts do you, you uncover? Where are you looking right now as you're trying to understand what's going on? I spend way too much time on Twitter. Certainly, um, one of the nice things about the current political moment and the current historical moment is that people are being very explicit in their discussions of nuclear weapons. So they, there's a lot of chatter about them, you know, and as terrifying or uh, upsetting as it can be, right? You know, when was the last time Vladimir Putin or the president of Russia decided to have a nice video show about their new nuclear weapons and these supposed new systems? So in some ways, um, social media and sort of the larger cultural discourse and products that come out of it are a fundamental data point for me. Historically, I've done things like go through every issue of Physics Today and Scientific American 1950 to 1964 and looked for defense industry and nuclear weapons laboratory advertisements. Currently, I still kind of keep an eye on some of the cultural products that are coming in. You know, Newsweek and it's uh, had a cover about uranium and dirty bombs, for instance. And then, of course, I'm at the University of New Mexico, so I spend uh, a hefty amount of my time looking at heritage sites. So this is be will probably end up becoming my focus, at least for my dissertation work, is looking at nuclear weapon museums and nuclear weapon uh, memorial sites or sites associated with the nuclear weapons production complex and looking at how people are, I mean, A, obviously the physical setup of the site itself and its artifacts, but how people are interacting with those and interacting with each other and with the volunteers of the museum to create, you know, or to circulate beliefs and values about nuclear weapons. So I'm really interested in tracing these movements and these flows of discourse across space and time. So you mean Los Alamos, which is where they developed the first atom bomb and happens to be in your lovely state of New Mexico, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so Los Alamos has the Bradbury Museum. Uh, there's also the Los Alamos Historical Society, which has a great uh, little museum. There's the National Park Service. Uh, Los Alamos is part of its Manhattan Project uh, National Park. Um, but also there's Trinity Site, which is open twice a year, and that's where the first weapon was, or the first device nuclear weapon was tested. There's also the National Museum of Nuclear Science and History, which has a fabulous and unique collection of weapons casings, um, permissive action link equipment, et cetera, here in Albuquerque. Um, and, of course, New Mexico is home, right, to White Sands Missile Range, which is also where the Trinity site is. So there's a lot here. And uh, New Mexico, as time goes on, is going to remain the heart of the modern nuclear weapons complex. Why is that? Los Alamos is here. Sandia is here. And we've been shaking it. So uh, after the Cold War, when we started reducing the complex under this model of being agile and responsive, we shut down a lot of facilities that ended up getting concentrated mostly here, really. I mean, Sandia and Los Alamos. And then you have Lawrence Livermore in California, Oak Ridge in Tennessee. And there are a couple of other places that are still involved, but it really has come to be concentrated here. 
And I would argue that the heart of the weapons complex has generally been here as well. Most of the weapons in the stockpile were designed at Los Alamos, and all of them, starting, after, well, really right after World War II, and all of them have certainly gone through Sandia as well um, in terms of their ordnance uh, design. One of the things I've been thinking about lately is how ignorant most of us are about how all of this stuff works. And I'm wondering, as you've been going through and, and researching this, how much of the documentation and, you know, the stuff that you're looking at are government sources? Is it mostly, especially in the past, uh, were we learning about these things just based on what we were being told? The Soviet Union always had much better information about the American nuclear arsenal than the American people did. Again, with the end of the Cold War and the openness campaign of the Department of Energy, a lot of stuff got declassified. Not everybody was super happy about that. As a scholar, I overjoyed reaping the benefits of it. So um, this last uh, break, and certainly over the summer, I tend to go back. I spent a hefty amount of time in the um, UNM's National Nuclear Security Agency reading rooms. So we get their Freedom of Information Act stuff. And also they have to deposit certain documents there. The access to that material uh, is amazing, and it's something that just did not exist. So in the 1950s, when I was going through um, issues of Scientific American uh, and Physics Today, I mean, they had to declassify. It was all atomic information was basically born secret, and they were declassifying in the 40s, late 40s, um, early 50s, like stuff that's just very basic. Like here's the you know capture cross-section for a neutron of U-235 and U-238. I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but in general, you know, the American people have generally had to rely either on what the government was telling them or what they could piece together from uh, news reports, Freedom of Information Acts, etc. Uh, but like the Albuquerque Broken Arrow here, which happened in 1957 when a B-36 dropped a 13.5 megaton Mark 17 through the bomb bay doors, wasn't reported until 1980. Seven, I think, 1980-something, early 80s, in the New York Times. So literally kept secret 20, 30 years. What do you think all that secrecy has done to the culture and the way we talk about these weapons? That is an outstanding question. I regard secrecy less, or I've come to regard secrecy less as an issue of information being hidden and more as a productive form of governance, um, in a sense. So the choice of what information to confirm, to release, to deny, to neither confirm nor deny, um, I think in at least many cases has been to varying degrees thought through or not thought through. Certainly, I would not say that the level of secrecy or information withhold that has been involved um, has not benefited us, right? What does it matter if we declassify the yield of a weapon system that has been out of the stockpile for the last 30 years? You know, do I need to know the material of fog bank? No. But the public knowing that deuterium tritium boost gas is used for a primary in a thermonuclear device actually has some public policy importance, right? How many reactors do we need to build? Uh, what sort of tritium production capacity do we need, et cetera? Um, and back in the day, as I recall, that was information that like the Reagan administration was not real keen on giving out. Um, and even the Basic, the actual number of weapons in the American stockpile has usually been a classified number. And I don't see how that contributes to public information or public participation in policymaking. 
And in terms of a cultural thing, right? I mean, you get to just let your imagination run wild in the absence of definitive guiding information and even in the presence of it sometimes. Well, we, it feels like we're still letting our imagination run wild these days. Yeah. I mean, right. As Derrida said, nuclear war is fabulously textual um, in that we haven't, well, we've, you know, haven't really had one in which both sides were firing. And uh, when we do, that'll kind of probably be the end of most things. So um, in the meantime, right, you get to make up kind of whatever you want. Uh, and certainly saw that in the 50s and 60s with the plethora of cultural products in which exposure to nuclear radiation produced superpowers and villains and, you know, it was kind of a deus ex atomica. Right. I think of the 50s and 60s as kind of the golden era of nuclear pop culture. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if you could describe that time to the audience and what kind of artifacts and things you're seeing from that era. Yeah. Uh, you know, I would argue that nuclear energy wide or atomic energy as the phrase was more often than widely conceptualized um fit into this sort of larger american meliorist enlightenment philosophy of progress through technological control of nature and in the 40s you know it appeared to many that the dropping of the atomic bombs had ended the war in japan and there was lots of discussion about the supposed uh technological marvels that would occur and their impacts on society. So um, advertisements of the 50s and 60s that I've seen, certainly it started pulling back a little bit. In the 50s, um, oftentimes discussions in the early 50s, especially at least that I've seen, uh, discussions of atomic energy were oftentimes um, articulated to like military products. You know, we helped build this for deterrence. And certainly as the 50s advanced, you began or I began seeing more advertisements about the potential of civilian nuclear energy, the use of nuclear energy and industrial design and processes. And then by the late 50s to early 60s, I'd say I started seeing more like, you know, nuclear space propulsion will take us to the stars or, you know, here's how we're using nuclear power for space exploration. And by, you know, the 80s or 90s, certainly, I think that atomic energy was probably replaced more with like discussions of genetic technologies kind of came to take some of the place that atomic energy had. But certainly after the 62, you know, the, the golden age started going away. And part of that's related to the loss of cold war consensus and other stuff. Well, but there was always a positive and a negative side, right? That was out there simultaneously. Cause you talked about mutants, you talked about atomic powered spaceships. Oh yeah. Um, so, I mean, we never quite agreed as to whether nukes were an entirely good or a bad thing, I guess. Yes, and yes, and that wasn't necessarily reflected in some of the cultural products that I certainly Greg Herkin in his discussion of the winning weapon points to a large amount of um, non-homogeneity or heterogeneous, heterogeneous opinions about nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. The ads that I've seen, especially in the 50s, like it blows my mind that there seemed to be very little separation made between the military and the civilian aspects of it. So you would see people advertising things involving atomic energy, but using a mushroom cloud as this sort of indexical or iconic symbol, which to me is really weird, right? Like, why would you be advertising nuclear power with a mushroom cloud? That That's discordant <laughs> to me. And it... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, something and, and went wrong. Like, 
make me feel better about proliferation potential of, you know, heavy water reactors being sold, right? So it's really, it's really odd to me that that happened. But certainly I think by the late fifties, at least in the ads that I've seen late fifties, early sixties, um, the separation between the military and the commercial stuff was a little bit more formed, at least in those products. But yeah, as you point out, the public was always, it seems, a bit more mixed. Well, and it, it seems to me, uh, in my cursory understanding of all this stuff, that somewhere in the 70s, 80s, the, the balance shifted and there yeah. was mostly fear. Do, was, there any, was there any one thing, was there anything that you can pinpoint that really Probably brought the us there? Probably the crisis and then the collapse of detente. Uh, and the failure of things like uh, massive civilian nuclear power and certain other technological stuff to come into being. So, you know, there was a lot of discussion that just it didn't happen. Um, you know, we weren't doing electricity so cheap to monitor. We weren't selling vacuums with nuclear power, which was always bizarre to me that that was even a thing somebody thought of. But, you know, we didn't have cars powered by many reactors. But I think also definitely, right, the, the experience of 1962 scared the hell out of a lot of people. And again, you had the collapse of this sort of Cold War consensus in the late 50s, early 1960s. You know, living under the threat of a constant world-ending nuclear Armageddon takes a toll, as we are rediscovering. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Do you think we need these weapons? Uh, in the long term, no is the the simple answer you know do we need them now uh need is a weird word i'm a you know i'm a disarmament guy i'm a multilateral disarmament person i wouldn't feel comfortable with the u.s just being like you know what we're out of this you know i think that there are other ways of arranging security such that now granted it would require very large changes in terms of how we organize the world but i think that there are safer uh ways of doing it than relying on the constant threat of mass destruction like this how big do you think the role of North Korea's nuclearization is in the current resurgence of nuclear discussion? Uh, important, honestly. Um, Trump has been equally, at least as equally important. Um, at least in my own experience, I have never had so many discussions about U.S. nuclear command and control as I did after he won the nomination for the Republican, you know, Republican nomination. Um, and then in the months after he came into office, I have argued on my blog um, that part of why Americans have reacted the way that they are to North Korea is partly because we are having to confront our own discomfort with nuclear deterrence and its assumption of rationality in the form of a commander in chief who often acts in a manner that is irrational 
or impulsive. So I think it's kind of a one-two thing there. And also, I don't think that we can disarticulate the pace of North Koreans' uh, commitment to nuclearization at this point from certain policies that the United States has really been doing lately and the ways in which uh, our national command authority has been talking about North Korea and U.S. diplomacy. Of course, now, you know, we're supposed to have a summit in May and Cthulhu only knows what will happen. You know, it's, it's I mean, that's the thing, right? We're all really uncertain. And where does that uncertainty come from? Right. And certainly the Hawaii thing uh, is very exemplary in some ways of the current sociocultural moment. Hawaii started doing its civil defense sirens because of the progress that North Korea was seen to be making. Um, And then you had a false alarm. And I would argue that people respond to those alarms, at least as I read the history of the Cold War, to the degree to which they think, you know, a nuclear attack is actually possible. And clearly quite a few people on, on Hawaii thought it was possible. And I don't think the reaction would have been quite the same if this had happened Two years ago. And in fact, it couldn't have happened two years ago because the system only got vamped up again, you know, in the last year. That speaks to, to another thing that I think I've been thinking about lately is the if do you think these weapons are so unthinkable and so frightening that some of us shut down? Yeah, no, I, I you hit it right. It's the nuclear sublime. It's and this is part of, you know, test footage, too. Right. You watch test footage and there's that you're confronted with something that cognitively you can't necessarily process. And there are all sorts of ways we deal with that. And this goes back to very explicit discussions of civil defense in America from the beginning, this desire to instill to through psychological management, um, instill a productive sense of anxiety, but not have it go into terror and fear leading people to shut down. Um, and certainly the United States, at least in its official civil defense efforts, never seemed to find that perfect balance, partly, you know, because it was never funded at the level where it would have really made a difference. And also partly because not everybody was going to buy into it and people are coming at it from different perspectives. Uh, and it's a it's a tough task. But, yeah, I, I, I think you nail it. Like a lot of times it's, you know, what can I do? How can I change things? And it's just it feels too big for an individual. What do you think people need to know? What should we be talking about? That the United States has, you know, 720 to 800-ish nuclear weapons ready to fly 24-7, 365. One person has launch authority and that our entire, the way that we organize the world and power in it is dependent upon a doomsday machine, basically. Uh, And eventually our luck is going to run out um, and that individuals can impact U.S. and other nuclear policies, right? In the 80s, you saw mass protests, the largest protest um, in history, American history at that time, over the nuclear freeze um, around the deployment of cruise missiles and such. Didn't have a direct in the sense that like Reagan saw that and said, oh, I'm going to change you know, nuclear policy today. But it absolutely impacted the limits of what was political, politically feasible and enabled shifts in policy and you know, mass action against Nuclear risk, I think, is more necessary now than at any time since the Cold War ended. And there are always local groups you can join or you can start one. But there are things to do or just call your Congress critter every week and say, hey, look, I don't want to die in a nuclear apocalypse. Deal with this. Because if they don't hear from you, you know, they don't know that it's an issue. 
but before people start taking action, they need to get educated, right? So how do you educate people in an era of social media? You know, I have this large black cat, Jupiter, and he's my, my nuclear meme cat, right? In my, I'm half kidding, but in my experience, right, terrible truths expressed by adorable fluffy cats are, are better handled. Uh, so I have this whole series of, of cat memes. But, you know, one of my commitments is to making my research materials and what I have found available. So I post on my Twitter, I post on my blog. Sometimes I'm lucky enough to be invited to chat with great folk like y'all. You know, and we can also talk about what level of education is really considered necessary to be able to have a cogent opinion on nuclear weapons. Do you need to know each warhead design and their delivery vehicle um, to be able to say, you know what, I don't want to die in a thermonuclear holocaust? Probably not. You know, so I'm not, I'm not, that's a, that's a weird question. You know, what level of information is necessary? And also, I don't think that the conflicts over nuclear weapons are so much driven by information deficits. So, you know, you can talk with someone who has access to the same historical and technical information that you do, and you can both come to very different conclusions about what the role of nuclear weapons has been in history and will continue to be in history. And I'm not quite sure how to deal with that yet. My first impulse is to say, you know what? A lot of the time when we're talking about nuclear weapons, we are probably actually talking about deeper-seated beliefs about violence and its role and power and its importance for the organization of human societies. As an anthropologist, I would point out that inter- and intra-group violence has differed widely in form, content, and meaning, you know, across both time and space. So for me, appeals to human nature are inherently problematic, but I feel like oftentimes that's the sort of conversation we're not having, but we are having through this language of nuclear weapons if that makes sense somewhat. No, it does. I mean, the, the nuclear weapons are so big and so frightening and so yeah. powerful that they almost become Absolutely. totems. And certainly, right. right, my nuclear button is bigger than your nuclear button. Like, I mean, I lost it when that, oh, God. I, I, remember, I mean, I, I literally lost it in my apartment. The cats went running. Uh, I had to go get some pie. Speaking as an anthropologist, uh, if you study societies and groups of human beings uh, holding everything from bones to sticks to rocks and beating ourselves and each other over the head with them. Do you think it's sustainable for a bunch of well-adapted, overly-adapted gorillas to have something like nuclear weapons and not use them? I'm uncomfortable with the... Um, I mean, we're closely related. So... Humans, gorillas, and chumps had a, a split a couple about three. I, I know, years ago. I know. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. It, the, the old bioanimal <laughs> comes up, and I'm just like, oh. no, I was like, no. Okay, yes, <laughs> yeah, we are not. Okay. But but moving aside, <laughs> right? Um, I think the history of the Cold War is very clear that we have come very close to accidentally killing hundreds of millions to billions of people. As the current administration is demonstrating um, somewhat, right, the assumption of rationality and nuclear deterrence is not necessarily always true in the real world. The assumptions of unitary actor are not always true in the world, right? So, I mean, the, the theoretical basis upon which we justify these things is really shaky. But just from a historical pr perspective of the Cold War, you know, in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis, I mean, there are three or four things that happened that 
easily had things gone slightly differently could have led to a global thermonuclear war. And then the same thing in 1983 with the Able Archer exercises. Um, but even in 95 with the, uh, the Black Brant missile alert accident, you know, or as I like to say, luck is not an acceptable strategy in the thermonuclear age. From my perspective, um, at least the way that we deploy them now, if we continue this, it is not long-term sustainable. Uh, the longer that we have them and that we're ready to use them, sooner or later they're going to get used. That's the that's the kind of depressing note that we usually like to end the show on. Oh, good. Yes, right? Pet cats, eat pie, um, embrace the void, you know, uh, <laughs> or do what makes you happy. And also be sure to follow Martin Pfeiffer's work on his Twitter account at Nuclear Anthro. And also check out his Patreon at patreon.com forward slash nuclear anthro. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this week's War College. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we do. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Jason, Jason Fields. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a comment. We love hearing from you, and we might just read your comment on the show. You can also reach us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast or on Twitter at war underscore college. Our website is almost ready. In the weeks ahead, you'll hear an unconventional history of the Marine Corps, learn why the French military took such a licking in World War II, and find out if you have what it takes to make it as a battlefield medic. Until then, stay safe. It's a dangerous world. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. Mm. 